Before we get to today's show, I want to ask you all for a big favor. Make sure you leave a rating or review. If you listen to the podcast, if you get value out of it, let us know. Leave a rating or review for two reasons. Number one, it helps other people find the show. It makes sure that we're climbing up the charts. And number two, it lets us know that we're doing something right. I read all the ratings and reviews. I want to know what you guys like. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at RealJohnDavids and hashtag making it. You can talk to me. I want to know what you guys think. Now let's get to today's show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Brandon Turner, welcome to the podcast. Dude, thank you for having me. This is going to be awesome. I'm excited. I can't wait. And I got to tell you, before we started this, I tweeted out, I got Brandon on the podcast. A lot of questions that came in, actually. I'll include some of them. And uh, yeah, man, there's just so much I want to ask you. So let's just do a quick 30 seconds. I mean, a lot of folks are going to know you, but how do you explain yourself in in 30 seconds? Yeah, man. So here's what I like to say. I spent the last 15 years of my life building up a whatever $650 million rental portfolio so that I could be a barista. I just bought a $3,000 coffee machine and I am perfecting the latte art. I'm not good yet, but I'm going to perfect it. So my entire life's mission now is to get a like a pretty flower on the top of my latte at home. So I just had to use... I went the long way about getting to that end result. So that's, that, that's my that might now. be the hardest challenge ahead based on everything I know about you. That is not easy <laughs> stuff to do. <laughs> it's not easy. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. But no, yeah, I got into real estate at 21 or 2021, 20, something like that. Bought a house made a little bit of money and I thought that's way better than law school. So I dropped all those plans and then bought more and more until I had like 30 units. Then I quit my job. I was 27. I was financially free, quote unquote. Like in other words, I could pay kind of like my 27-year-old bills, which were not much, through rental cash flow. And then um, three and a half years ago, I decided to get hot and heavy into commercial real estate. Started buying mobile home parks, syndication, raising money. And now like I said, 650 something million. I think we're right at 7,400 units, give or take, and uh, raise money from about a thousand accredited investors. So it's been uh, crazy exponential growth the last few years, but I still buy yeah. little stuff too. I got a couple condos in Maui and just bought a place in Idaho. So yeah, it's fun. Unbelievable. So there's so much to unpack there. We'll start at the present and then we'll go back a little bit. So, first off, what percentage of what you own or what you do now is like your own private money kind of stuff? versus the ODC fund? Yeah, almost nothing anymore is mine other than like the condos, the Idaho property I just bought. Like some of like the smaller kind of the vacation rental stuff would be mine. And then I still have a couple dozen units back in Washington state where I used to live. But almost everything else, I just keep dumping my money back into my own funds. And I've invested in a few other people's syndications as well. And all that just comes down to like, I'll tell you a quick story. Five, six years ago, something like that now. I learned how to buy at auction. So I read some stuff on auction buying. I went to the auction, scared to death. I'd been bid on a property. This is actually probably more like eight years ago because I sold it like five years ago. So I bid on the property. I get it for $15,000, this house. I'm like, I'm the man, right? So I go and I fix it up. And I, I managed some contractors for almost a year, these terrible contractors. We fixed it up. I rented it out on Airbnb for a while. Didn't like that. It was just middle of the night phone calls and can't figure out how to work the remote and all that stuff. So then I shifted over to a traditional rental for it. Didn't like that. You got some crappy tenants that kind of wrecked the place. Refixed it back up and then sold it for like $70,000. So over the course of those three years, I went... That was a traditional rental. Very normal for like what rentals do, right? I added up my return at the end of the day. And I averaged it out over those three and a half years I owned the property. And it ended up only making a 15% per year return on that. And I was like, well, shoot. I could have just given my money to a syndicator or somebody else's deal. And there's so many easier ways to invest in real estate. So that's why today, I now mostly I don't do my own stuff. Mostly I just dump it into syndications, my own or others, because it's just way easier. And I get probably the same return, if not better. Interesting. And it took you that long to learn it over all these years. Yeah, yeah. it took me <laughs> forever to... I want to do everything myself. And I think a lot of us have that same thing. We're like, right. we just like... We're deal junkies. We like to do deals. We like to put things together. So anyway, I still do, like I said, occasionally time and time I'll do a, my own deal, but I try not to because I think it's just way easier to make money in business and then dump it in some kind of passive real estate form 
It's, and, it's uh, so funny. And I think that lesson actually is true also for people who are entrepreneurs and who are doers. Eventually, your company grows and maybe you're doing a few million in revenue. And then everyone says, okay, you got to delegate. Well, the problem is that when you delegate things, you have nothing to do. And you feel yeah. like you're waking up and you're unproductive. But in reality, that's when you're doing your best, when you have all the people around you who are doing the work. But yeah, it doesn't feel quite as energetic as you want it to be. Correct. And that's when you start buying $3,000 latte machines and making <laughs> latte art. <laughs> because you're like, like, I literally like, sometimes I get up and I'm like, I almost feel useless in my company because I got like 65 employees now or something like that, that are out there just running things. And for the most part, I mean, my job is to just maintain this like presence of like social media to do podcasts and stuff like that. Like that brings in a lot of our investors and then to lead the team like with a, a call like once or twice a week. We operate on EOS, which is that entrepreneurial operating system that from Traction by Gino Wickman. So we operate on that. So like I have a, a call like once or twice a week with the team. And then I'll talk fundraising and I kind of, I'm like the visionary. So we have a lot of those calls. But in reality, I'm probably less than 10 hours a week most weeks. This week's a lot more because we got some big stuff brewing. But yeah, so okay. it is fascinating how the more elevated you get in your business, the fewer hours that you have to work, yet the more money that you make. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a cool concept. It's so counterintuitive. And I yeah. probably hit that point myself about a year, year and a half ago. And it really does take some getting used to. So I want to yeah. paint the picture for people. You have raised more money online, I think, and I don't have the numbers on this, but it seems to me that maybe other than Grant Cardone, you're probably like the guy who has raised so much capital online. So A, is that true? And I'm curious to know what your path was to get there. Because honestly, there are so many influencers who are... you know, They do sponsored posts and they make courses and they're doing coaching. It seems like you've taken this vehicle you have and done, in my mind, the most you could possibly do with it. Was that a natural transition? Did it take a while to kind of think that through? Yeah, that's a great question, man. You know Alex Hermosi? He's an internet marketing guy. Yeah. Okay, so Alex has been talking about this lately a lot. He's got a smart business. He's not in real estate for those who are, don't recognize the name. He's in like internet marketing. But what he does is he gives away all his information basically for free. Or he has like an audio book that he does the bare minimum cost, whatever Amazon will let him in a Kindle book. It's very good. It's called $100 million offers. But his whole thing is like, look, I don't have anything to sell you. It's all for free. I'm just going to be the good guy that everyone likes. But then if you want to sell me a piece of your company, you can do that. He basically created his own Shark Tank like funnel out of his own followers because he built up such trust and credibility. So I love that he's doing that on that side. I feel like I kind of did that on the real estate side. And I learned that from Josh Dorkin, who built Bigger Pockets. I mean, Josh was the founder of Bigger Pockets. I was his very first employee back in the day. Right. So Josh once told me, I don't know if he said exactly these words. But he said, if you can get millions of people to know, like, and trust you, you can do anything. So he never had, I mean, to this day, Bigger Pockets doesn't really have a course. Bigger Pockets doesn't have like coaching, any of that. Because as Alex said on a podcast, Alex Hermosi said the other day, he said, people are stepping over empires to pick up pots of gold. It's a pot of gold. It's still a ton of money, like having a big course, or whatever, nothing wrong with it. Maybe someday I'll do it. But the real thing is the empire that can be built. And I saw Grant Cardone do that. I always wondered, like, when I had Grant on the podcast years ago, he didn't have like a real estate training course. Maybe he does now, but he didn't. Instead, he was just putting out mass amounts of content and then using that to raise money for deals. And I, I started doing the math. I'm like, oh, geez, that's the ultimate leverage. You raise money to put down payments on massive commercial deals that go up in value dramatically. And I was like, Grant's going to be a billionaire. It took him like three years. And I think he's claiming now he's a billionaire. I don't know his net worth, but he says he's a billionaire. And I'm like, shoot, that's a real model. So yeah, I'm a big fan of stepping over, like step over the pots of gold and build the empire, get people to like and trust you. And you can figure out what to do later with that. I love that. Stepping over pots of gold or stepping over an empire for pots of gold. Is that what it was? Yeah, he said people are stepping over empires to pick up a pot of gold. Like the empire is way that. bigger and way better, but all they see is that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And so they're just stepping over the bigger game, which is like building an empire. Yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, empire builders. It's fun. Now you have that machine, but can you take us back to that? I don't know if you remember, but that first yeah. syndicated deal, I'm assuming the first big syndicated deal you did was something <laughs> that you raised via social media. So what was the size of that? How did that go? Was it like that moment where you wake up in the morning and you look at your bank account and you're like, oh my God, we did it? <laughs> What was that actual experience like? 
Yeah, I got a couple stories I'll tell you because it took a few false starts to get there. First one, I decided I was going to do mobile home parks, first of all. So it starts with the decision. I'm going to do mobile home parks. I'm going to raise money to do it. And I said, I'm going to raise money from a couple buddies of mine that I know are wealthy. So I find a mobile home park I wanted to buy. And I go to them. I hadn't even put under contract yet, but I went to them and I was like, hey guys, I got what I think is a really good deal. Do you want to invest in it with me? And they both said no. And I was like devastated because I don't like asking for money anyway. But this time I like worked up the courage and I did it. I was like, hey, will you invest with me? And they said no. And I was just miserable. And I remember telling my performance coach, his name is Jason Drees. I was like, Jason, I am never going to raise money. I'm not good at raising money. I don't like raising money. I hate asking for money. I'm never doing this again. Because I just felt humiliated. My coach like then pushed me on that. And I remember sitting like, where I was when I sat there doing this like practice where it's like, he's trying to change my mindset from I'm not good at it to I'm not yet good at it. And I am good at raising money because I'm good at offering good deals. Anyway, it was a shift in the mindset. And it didn't happen overnight, right? But then a few months later, a buddy of mine comes to me. And he, we weren't even friends at the time. His name's Ryan Murdoch, but he had been on the podcast and he emails me. He's like, hey, I heard you were looking for a mobile home park. I found one in my area that's perfect for you. Do you want me to introduce you to the seller? And I said, yes, but only if you partner with me because I don't know anything about that area. I don't know managers out there. I know nothing. So Ryan and I ended up taking it on together. And another friend of ours actually worked at Bigger Pockets, Mindy. She joins with us. And we ended up buying it. Ended up making a ton of money. It was a super successful deal. So that was like the first and the second iteration of trying to get into syndication. Now the third one, which is the official ODC, we decided, okay, we're doing it. We're going to go raise money. We got a couple of mobile home parks under contract. We had to raise, I think it was, we were going to do a $4 million fund. No, we were going to raise $4 million. It took us two months. And we finally shut down the raise because we just could not raise enough. We stopped at about three. And so like after two months, we raised about $3 million and uh, went and bought these properties. I had to buy a little less because I just couldn't raise enough. And again, I was like, man, we did it, but it took so long. It was so much work and effort. Since then, we've raised over $200 million. And we typically will raise $20 million in the first 24 hours. It just shows how momentum works, right? From that first, I'm not going to do it, to the middle one where it's like, hey, we kind of started feeling it out. To that first official syndication, which was slow, and we had to figure out our systems. And had I given up at any of those three points, I would not be where I was today. But I just kept pushing through, just kept asking, how do I do this better next time? How do we figure this out? How do we instill more trust with people? How do we get better deals? And that's what got us to today. That's unreal. And it's a really good lesson because at the end of the day, as you said, it's not that you can't do it. It's that you're not trying it for long enough. I'm yeah. sure there were also things that you learned in there where it was like, Okay, so for deal number four, or whatever that number was, we've got to do this and this and this differently. Because being able to raise $20 million in 24 hours, even if you have the audience, even if you have the trust, that's serious commitment. People are giving you their money. So were yeah. there key learnings where you were like, okay, we got to do this and this and this? Yeah, a couple of things we noticed. I mean, first of all, this is fascinating, just human nature. When somebody gives you money, they are more likely to give you money again, even if they never got a penny in return yet. Which is weird, right? Because it's like you have to get them to like break that initial like fear of lending you money. But once they have, they're way more likely to do it again. The same way if you're trying to sell a product to somebody, if you sell somebody a, let's say you had a training course for something online, right? You sell somebody a $5 ebook, they are 10 times more likely to buy your $5,000 course because they've already like opened up the possibility of buying something from you. Same thing we found with syndication. If you can just get people in the door, they're more likely to invest with you later. That said, people also, it didn't really crank up our ability to raise until we had our first deal sold. That really made a big difference. All of a sudden, we had like, it wasn't theory, it was fact. So the sooner you can get from theory to fact, the better. So our first deal was like a 35% IRR we delivered to investors. It was really good. So now everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, this isn't just, you know, us internet micro celebrity from a podcast doing real estate and trying to have fun. Like they have a legit business. And it helped me internally, right? Believe like, oh, this does work. The theory has come true. Having social proof, having case studies, any kind of business you're in, or even in the venture capital business, I hear this a lot on, on kind of timing of fundraising. Having that yeah. social proof and being able to say, hey, you missed out on this one. Hey, we had an IRR of X and it's you know super high RRR. Do you want to get onto this one? You are much more likely to have people that were on the fence the first time that are yeah. in the second time. 
Yeah, it's so true. Now, granted, like it's gotten harder to raise money. In fact, this summer has been the hard, like we got a lot of money to raise this summer and like it's been hard, it's been way harder than like winter, right? Because when the stock market was high, people knew it was high. And so they were selling their stocks and then taking the profit and dumping it into us because then we can give them a bunch of tax write-offs and the depreciation, all that. It was super easy to raise money. Now the stocks are lower and hopefully on their upward trend, People don't want to sell stocks because you don't sell at the bottom. Everyone knows that. And so we're having a much harder time, right? We're still doing it, but it's just becoming way slower. Like I think we raised 8 million out of the 30 we need for our deal that we're buying right now in the first couple of days. And so now it's just like, okay, well, now we got to put some work in. Like now we need to talk to more people and have more webinars and more meetups and do some advertising and it's adaptability. You just change with the market and uh, yeah, yeah, it works. Hundred percent. So let, let's talk about that. I mean, here we are in July 2022, and everyone's like, "Are we in a recession? Are we entering a recession?" No. And I know I actually saw an Instagram post you, you put out earlier this week talking about kind of some highlights of where you see, you know, positives and negatives. Who's going to get hurt? What's your general sense of in a recession in the real estate sector in particular? What does it mean? Because you said earlier, I heard you say somewhere else, like, "Yes, interest rates go up, but rents also go up." So. Where does it get hard and what do you have to watch out for? Yeah. So generally speaking, there is no average anymore. Like I, I kind of feel like a lot of times people will base future models off of the past. And we're in a different world right now that I think that America has never been in. So I will preface all this with, this is all theory. We don't actually know what's coming. But in general, when you look at trends, I love using the analogy of like whale watching. When you go out whale watching in the ocean, like we do it on paddle boards in Maui all the time. We love it. You don't paddle to where the whale is. You paddle to where the whale is headed, right? You want to get in front of the whale. And so then the whale gets to you. Like You're not trying to get to the whale. You're trying to get the whale to get to you. So the same thing with real estate is I want to look at what's happening in the world and I want to get in front of it so that it hits me where I want to be, right? So when I think of things like, for example, when you print a lot of money, as we've been saying for years, when you print the kind of amount of money the government's printing, you're going to get inflation. Now, what shocked me, or maybe doesn't shock me, is all the politicians going, we had no idea this was going to happen. Like, you're just like, <laughs> who could have seen it? <laughs> yeah, who could have seen that coming, that printing 40% of all money ever in circulation in the past two years would lead to inflation? Shocking. But they have to say that or they won't get reelected. If they admitted that they knew they were going to destroy the economy, then that would be bad. So inflation is coming. What does that mean? It means prices are going up. Rents have gone up by like 5.6% over the past year. Overall, all inflation has been like 9%. Gas has been 40%. Like all these things are going up in price or cost, including rent. So when I look at that, I don't see that getting better anytime soon. I think that's going to continue. I think they'll get a a hold on it eventually, but I don't think we're going to see rents drop anytime soon. So what's the whale I can get in front of? Well, if I lock in debt now, even at a higher rate than we were paying two years ago, but if I can lock in debt now on rental property, and rent goes up because certain areas are growing, like Austin, which is one of the places I'm buying, then that whale should eventually hit me called like higher rents, which lead to higher net operating income and everything else. And then obviously, people are having a hard time paying their bills. So I also assume we're going to have more delinquencies in the future. So we're getting in front of that whale. I think we're going to see a lot more foreclosures at some point. Not like 08 again. So anyway, those are just little things I look for. And I'm like, as long as you're smart and you're constantly watching it, and trying to make them educated guesses, I think we'll be all right. I think recessions are where millionaires are created and for those who are smart and bold. So I'm trying to be smart and bold in this time and hopefully it pans out. And are mobile home parks still where you're focused or do you think there are other areas that might present opportunity now? Yeah, I love mobile home parks still. We simply, to put it bluntly, like we just can't buy enough of them for what we can raise. Like We just raise way more than what we can buy. We're buying about 100 million of mobile home parks every year, and we're buying pretty much the max we can buy. I'm, I'm sure we're the biggest buyer in the country, other than maybe like a Blackstone buying a, a billion dollar fund portfolio or something. We just can't buy enough. So we had the choice. We can just like stay small, you know, small 100 million a year, or we can get into another asset. And both myself and my, all my partners, we've all been in multifamily, like apartments, and we all like apartments. So we are also doing apartments, kind of like B class. I don't want like the top, top of the market where people are paying four grand for rent because in a recession, those people move to the cheaper spots. But I like the like working class, blue collar, but nicer apartments. So we're doing that as well right now. So let's talk a little more about kind of your tactics. 
and the way that you raise money and the way that you build your profile. Obviously, we haven't actually even mentioned it yet, but you were the host of the bigger podcast for 10 years or so. So everyone knows you from there. And I want to ask you about that in a second. But you built a big Instagram following. One of the questions that I got from Twitter beforehand was from uh, Real Estate Twitter and FinTwit was, why aren't you more active on Twitter? And have you been or maybe there's some reason behind that. But there's a huge real estate community on Twitter that's like, hey, why isn't Brandon active here? Is there a reason for that? It's a great question. I should be more active there. So a lot of people like don't realize this, but I actually... I am the guy behind my Instagram. Now I have a virtual assistant who will edit videos for me. But like I post on my own Instagram every single day. I enjoy it. I like that aspect of my life. And I post on TikTok occasionally, but not as much. I just feel like you can't do all of them unless you have a team. And I just don't have a team of social media people running stuff. So there's like Twitter, LinkedIn. I should be on LinkedIn. I should be on Twitter. Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Those are probably like the five big ones, right? So yeah. I just focus on Instagram because that's where my audience currently is. Meaning I've got 300,000 followers there. I've got 30,000 maybe on Twitter. That said, I am changing. Like Just this morning, I tweeted a big long thing. And because I realized I can engage on Twitter and then use that content, taking pictures of the tweets and put them over on Instagram. And it's like a two for one deal. right? So I'm honestly... I just don't understand Twitter good enough. I would love... You could explain Twitter to me sometime how to do it better because I, oh I just don't God. know how to do it well. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, and you're not on Twitter, so you probably don't realize this. There's a guy named Nick Huber. His handle is Sweaty Startup. And he's okay. probably the most active kind of real estate Twitter guy that I know. 300,000 followers on Twitter. So his thing is self-storage. And he's got... I think he's told me he has like 1,200 investors that he's brought in from Twitter. And yeah, the guy's been you know just kind of doing your thing, not quite at your level. But yeah, when I put out a tweet and said any questions, it was Nick who said, I got to know why Brandon's not on Twitter. He should be here. So, <laughs> all right. So, I'm making a commitment right now publicly to everybody. I'm going to double down on Twitter. Yeah, I just haven't for no other reason. It just hasn't fired me up. Back in the day, I feel like Twitter was just like when I looked at it, it was like just people shouting into the wind, mostly political stuff about Donald Trump. And it was just like, right. that's all it was. Granted, I must have been in the wrong place on Twitter. I was in the wrong room hanging out with the wrong people. I'm it's so funny. I, I, I actually had the exact same experience. So I set up my Twitter account like 2009. And then I started using it again in 2021, like a lot of people did during the pandemic. Yeah. And yeah, if you filter your tweets right, and you kind of curate who you follow, there's a lot of value there. But I'm giving you advice, but you've done very well. So no, dude, uh, I, need it. I need it. Because yeah, I mean, because there are a lot of people on Twitter who are not on Instagram. And there are a lot of people on LinkedIn who are not on Twitter or Instagram. And so I need to... I mean, I'm just thinking a lot like I need a full-time social media manager. I mean, that just, I guess, has just become blatantly obvious to me. I've raised $200 million in the last three years from Instagram alone. And I don't think it's worth having an $80,000 a year you know, person running my social media. Of course, like, yeah. I think but it's I well like worth to be, it. I want to be engaged too. I, yeah. That's yeah. true. I will say though, I'm actually surprised and impressed that you don't have somebody... As you said, you have a virtual assistant. But I would think that you have like a total Gary V operation back there where you got like, Five people full time just doing everything for you. It's it's great that you don't. Yeah, I got I have servers. I'm server. He's in the Philippines. He's awesome. So what I do is I I try to kind of do the Gary V thing where I'll record. Like for example, I'm recording this conversation right now. Right later, I can get this over to server, and he might cut it up and make some nice videos out of it because he's really good at editing a video. Like I'm not good at editing videos, but then like I'd say half the content. And honestly, on Instagram, it's the more uh, what's the word? Like it's the less polished stuff that does well anyway. Like when I just like pull up my phone and record something, it does 10 times better than a polished, nice video with the blue background. Like, so true. And, and yeah, and there's just a, there's an authenticity there that people can feel. And I want to make sure that I don't lose that with a social media manager. Now, if they can like give me strategy, like, hey, here's what you're going to do today go post three times here. I want you to reply to 50 people's tweets and then do this. I'm like, okay, I'm on it. I can do that. That's what I need. Yeah, man, this has been this has been worthwhile just for your advice to me, man. <laughs> I hope that people get as much advice out of me as I'm getting yeah. out of you today. This is great. I'll, I'll share some more offline. Yeah, there's a lot more you could do. Let's yeah, talk please. though. I'm so curious to know about the Bigger Pockets podcast because so I've got a bunch of questions. But the first question I have, I think, what a lot of people are wondering is why, after all this time, did you choose to end it? Let's start there. Why leave this podcast? Yeah, it's a good question. There was a number of things. Primarily, I was missing things in my life over and over because of the podcast. Personal things, meaning like time with my... Like my daughter would go to a ballet and I'm like, sorry, I can't go. I got to do a podcast today. I once had a pastor of a church tell me, Sundays come with alarming regularity. 
And I love that phrase, alarming regularity. It means it's every week, but it's always like, oh my gosh, it's Sunday, right? But it was like, oh, it's always podcast day. And it's always in the most inconvenient time. So like the number one thing for me, the way I score my life is, am I being a good husband and a good father? Like that's the ultimate scorecard for me. And I was not being as good as I could be because of the podcast, because of the time commitment that took. At the same time, they were trying to go to like three, four, five shows a week. And I was like, oh, geez, I'm trying to scale back. And then I had a coach, same coach, Jason, who pushed me on the mindset of not raising money. He said to me one time when I was all stressed out, he said, it sounds like maybe you need just a vacation from the podcast for a few weeks. Now in nine years or nine and a half years, I never really taken a week off. I think I had one week off in nine years where I didn't put a podcast out and I had somebody else sub in for me. And I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the guy I'm on it every week. I can't not be there. And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what I do need, I'm just going to take a month off. It's crazy. I'm going to take a month off. And the minute I decided to take a month off, it like tore my identity away from Brandon is bigger pockets to Brandon is his own person and bigger pockets is a business that's separate. And then it was like, within a few minutes, I'm like, well, if I'm going to take a month off, I might as well just leave entirely. <laughs> I can just like right. go focus on open door capital. So that's kind of, it was like several things at one time all kind of happened. And I don't regret, I mean, I miss sometimes talking with really high level investors, but then I just go on their podcast like I'm doing right now. And I talk to you right. and I'm like, oh, I get right back to this. So I'll come back on occasionally too on BP. Yeah, you were just on a few weeks ago. It was, it was a great episode. Was, yeah, yeah um, It makes total sense. And I totally respect that. My version of it was you were going to pull like a Justin Timberlake sync thing where it's like, <laughs> I got bigger solo plans. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe someday. But like, I do like the idea of podcasting. So I'm sure someday I will re-podcast again and get back into it. But right now, like social media is just way quicker and faster and easier. So like I can continue building a brand without having to do a podcast right now, which is fun. Yeah, that makes total sense. So one more question about the podcast. So I was a longtime listener. And actually, this is kind of... I just remember this now. Like I think it was back in 2014 or 15, the very first real estate book I ever listened to, the audiobook, I kept hearing like, well, as we say at, the, you know, at BP, a bigger pockets. And I was like, what the hell is this? And it was your book that I was listening oh, to. And that was my introduction to BP. But That's funny. Um, yeah, we sucked so, you into the cult. That's great. <laughs> I, I'm in there, man. I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. So my question is, that show was so polished. And I'm a podcast guy, I've got a podcast company. And you know, you have that, this is the Bigger Pockets radio. And it was such a polished show and it still is right now. I'm curious, what was happening behind the scenes? How did you get to that point? And were there ever moments where there are shows that you recorded that you couldn't use? Or was there a certain time where you said like, hey, the energy's not working. We got to do this. Like, how did you get it to that point? That's a great question. It starts with Regis and Kelly. Let me explain why. Regis and Kelly had a show, right? It was Regis and Kathy Lee originally. Then Kathy Lee left and they brought in Kelly. I don't remember her last name, but... Kelly Rippa. Yeah, Kelly Rippa. Okay, there you go. So then Regis left and they brought in, I think it was Michael Strahan or whatever his name is. The you got dude. it. Then he left and they brought in Ryan Seacrest. I think that's what it is right now. Kelly and Ryan, right? Yep. So my wife would watch that show in the mornings while getting ready and doing her makeup and stuff. It was on back when I started the Bigger Pockets podcast. And I would watch that show. And first of all, the fact that how they trade out co-hosts is exactly how we then did it at Bigger Pockets is we bring people in, we try people out. Uh, so when Josh left, we tried out a bunch of people. But more importantly, was like I would watch that show and I realized that every single episode was identical, even though it was a live show. They had segments that they would do. And it was, I craved that, those segments. I craved those things that were the same. It's like, oh yeah, this is that part of the show. Oh, here comes the spinny wheel thing. Oh, here comes that part. Uh, here's a little banter at the beginning. If you look at Saturday Night Live, you look at like any talk show, Oprah, anything like that, it's all the exact same thing because humans crave structure. We just crave the structure, but we want freedom within the structure, but we need, we need to wrap our heads around it and understand it. So... From day one, I remember like Josh and I talking and I brought up Kelly and whatever who was on at the time as like, let's make this show like that. Let's have segments. Let's have little catchy phrases and stuff. And, and then finally, Josh and I have this like, it's actually one of our core values at Open Door Capital, my current company. But it's like Josh and I had this continual improvement. Like they call it Kaizen. I think I'm saying it right in Japan, right? Like this always trying to get better, always improving. So every episode of the podcast we ever did we always ended with, we turn off the mics and we just go, okay, well, that sucked. 
how do we do it better next time? But like every time we would like just pour into all the things that we did wrong and that didn't, that weren't perfect and then try to do it better next. No, it wasn't necessarily that negative, but like we're always trying to get better and get it more polished to be like, because in the podcast world and in social media today, like it's not the wild west like it used to be. Like the authenticity, but also polished authenticity is what works today. You can't just pull out your phone and just, you know, whatever, just mumbling to the to the phone and hope to do well. You get to have good quality, good content. And that's what I think we just constantly did. And were you always, everyone knows this, but you've got an amazing energy. You pop on camera, you pop on social. Were you always like that? Or did that take a lot of training? I wasn't always like, I mean, I was in like show choir and theater when I was in high school, but I was like the mayor of the munchkins. I was not the, like the scarecrow, right? Like I was the guy that they had like no line. And you were tree number three. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I was like tree number three in the back. I actually did like stage work for a theater. Like I wasn't even on for the first two years. So like, no, I had some, like a little bit of training in it, but I was so shy and quiet that I wasn't good at any of that stuff. If you go back and watch my early bigger pocket stuff, my very first bigger pockets video looks like this. I'm like leaning back in the chair. I got my cat on my lap and I'm like, <laughs> the bigger pockets forums are the place you can go for. And I was like, just trying to like talk. It was terrible. And so a person can go back and look at bigger pockets videos over the years and watch when you do something a hundred times or a thousand times, it's amazing what happens, I guess. If anybody does anything for a thousand times, they're probably going to get and tries to improve, they're going to get bigger. So today, like when I turn on a camera microphone, in my head, I'm almost like acting. It's almost like I'm playing a role. I turn it on and I'm like, hey, everybody, what's going on? Like, yeah, you got to be bigger because the camera takes away half your energy. It's so true. And if you listen to you on the podcast, I mean, over the episodes, I think there were actually times where you would even put like outtakes of like episode 296 and the energy level was up. The transition you talked about, if I go and watch myself in videos on YouTube from 2012, the lighting is bad and like, what am I wearing? Mm -hmm. Everything. And now it's just like, again, the lighting is good. The audio is good. And my energy levels are higher because it does take practice. And this is also, I think there's a really important point to make here. A lot of people try to sort of get perfect before they put themselves out there. And there's a great... I think it was Reed Hastings, or I might be getting the attribution wrong, but this great quote, which is like, if the version one of your product is is really, really good, then you waited too long to launch because you should be yeah, a little bit so embarrassed of, of version one. And it's yeah. actually good because then as you get to version two and three and six and 12 and 20, you actually get better. If you try to just make it perfect before you put anything out there, you're not going to be as far along as you would have been. Yeah. One of my favorite business books of all time was The Lean Startup by Eric Reese or Rice. I'm not sure how you yeah. say his name, but The Lean Startup, right? It was all about this concept of like, just launch and then... Find out what your customers like and don't like about it and then do it again later and then do it again and again. It's like this continual iterative process is what gets you the result at the end of the day. Now, I did want to make one quick point. A lot of people listening might, might be thinking, well, I want to be better on social or I want to have a podcast, but I'm not energetic and I'm not outgoing. But I will point back again to Alex Hermosi, the guy we mentioned earlier. The guy sits back in his chair in like this muscle shirt and like with no... like He's not out loud or outgoing at all. He's just like, Hey, so this is what you got to do. However, his videos, every one of them, the content is so spot on gold that, I mean, everyone, the advice is like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So even if your energy is not there, make the content's energy there, right? The content itself has energy if it's going to change lives. And so, yeah, you can cover up a lack of charisma, which is really, really good, solid advice. That's bang on. I'll make one more point on that. The way I think about it is it's like you want to be the most authentic version of yourself. And yeah. that's what makes it so like Hermosi, yeah, like you just if anyone hasn't seen him, just you know, Google Alex Hermosi. I don't know, the guy must weigh like 300 pounds. So like a bodybuilder <laughs> who's also like an internet marketer, entrepreneur, yeah. superstar. As Brandon said, everything that he says is gold. He has, you know, so many um great pieces of social content. And so his energy is the vibe that I'm assuming I would get from him if I just sat down and had a beer with him. Yes. Like that would be him. Yeah. You'd be the guy, Brandon, I would assume at a party, you know, you're high energy, you're saying hi to people, you're friendly, and that comes across on camera. I think where you lose it is if you are one kind of person off camera and you try to be a different person on camera, that just does not come through. Agreed. And I see those people sometimes, they're trying really hard to be big. 
like and excited and charismatic and then they're just not. And so it just comes across awkward. What I like to say is like, I love you where you word you said is authenticity. I love that. So I always say like, there's a thing called like intentional authenticity. And it's this idea that you are being your authentic self, but you're intentional about showing that because so many people, like they don't want to show their authentic self. They want to only show the good stuff. They only want to show the powerful stuff that's going to make an impact. But I'm very intentional about, I'll post a picture of like my kids or I try not to show their faces too much because there's a lot of weird people out there. But like, I'll post a picture of my family. I'll talk about my life, my struggles. I'll mention that I can't stand the sound of my voice. I have not listened to one episode of the Bigger Pockets podcast, nor any other show I've ever done ever. Can't listen to it. I won't do it. Hate the sound of my voice. And so like I just said that. That's not untrue. It's authentic. But I'm not afraid to say it because it endears people to me. It builds a connection with people because they're like, oh, that guy has a self-esteem issue about that. Well, I got a self-esteem issue about this. I guess I can like that guy. So being intentional about being authentic, I think is one of the keys to good social media. Yeah, it humanizes you for sure. So you talked about Alex Hormozzi a bit. We've mentioned Grant Cardone. One other person that you kind of... I get some vibes from you is Russell Brunson. I don't know if you know Russell Brunson. I do. I like that guy. I don't know him him personally, but I follow what he's done a lot. I love funnels. I've always loved funnels. Since I first heard about like what a sales funnel is. And Russell's yeah. like the king of funnels, right? But what I love is I took that concept of he's teaching the internet marketing of like, you know, you get this many people to your webinar and then this many people convert. And first of all, I took that and applied it to bigger pockets and bigger pockets blew up with the webinar system they have over there. But also it applies to real estate so perfectly. Like it's a giant funnel. And if you know your funnel, you define what it is and you track all your metrics and set some goals for each part of the funnel you're going to get exactly what you want. Let me give you an example. I call it the LAPS funnel, L-A-P-S. If you want to buy real estate, you got to get leads that come in. And there's a lot of ways you can get those, but you got to get leads that come in. You have to analyze them because every property has a number that makes it work. Every single deal has a number that makes it a good one. So you just got to find that number. Then you got to pursue it, L-A-P. You got to pursue, you have to go after it, make an offer, talk to the owner, try to lock it up. So pursue it. And then if you do the LAP enough, you're going to get success. It's just numbers. And then if you're trying to always improve that Kaizen philosophy, you're definitely going to succeed. So at Open Door Capital, like I just told my team, as I'm like, guys, we're probably going to get one out of 10 offers accepted. So if we want an offer a month accepted, we got to make 10 offers every month. In fact, today we make about 10 offers a week or maybe five a week. And on average, we get a couple deals every month accepted. But in order to be able to offer that many, we have to analyze a certain number. We only offer on maybe one out of five that we analyze. And in order to analyze that many, we have to get a certain number of leads, which means you have to talk to a certain number of brokers. It all just comes down to numbers. And we can turn it up and turn it down as much as we want, depending on how much money we have to spend. And it's literally that simple. And if there's one thing I can go back and tell like new investors, like in getting into real estate, it's that. Look at your numbers, look at your metrics. It's very simple. And then just do the boring work. Just do the boring yeah. work and you'll get the results you want. Bang on. And we could have a whole nerdy discussion about sales funnels. I don't want to put people to sleep, but there's a huge amount of gold so, there. So I want to drill into that a little bit. And just to repeat that, so it's leads, analyze, pursue, success, and that's the LAPS system. So yeah, Russ Brunson and another guy, Sam Ovens, you know, these guys talk about funnels and the power of funnels, but you said something else, which I don't talk about as much, but it's been like huge for me. And it sounds like it has been for you also. And that's the power of webinars because you have this vehicle where you can have information that you're getting out to tons of people at once on a consistent basis. And you know, that's the top of your funnel and you can drive leads down from there. Now I didn't know this, but you just said a moment ago that you introduced webinars to bigger pockets. And I know, I think I heard that you would do like one a week, which I'm sure also yeah. sucked up a lot of time. But can you talk about how you used webinars to grow at BP? Yeah, yeah. I think webinars are probably the greatest sales tool in the planet to scale, like to build like and trust at scale. It's like, it's insane, right? But yeah, so bigger pockets, I remember way back in the day, we had a pro membership. I think it was like $5 a month at the time. I think we raised it to like $10 a month and you got to use some calculators on BP. And I was just like, I went to Josh and I'm like, Hey, I've been going to these webinars online because like, I was in internet marketing. I was going to internet marketing webinars. And I'm like, I think this could work for bigger pockets. And I was like, If I do this, can I just get like 10% of whatever I sell on the webinars? And Josh is like, Okay, that's fine. 
So I go and do one and I made like, no, sorry. First, I did the webinar without asking for anything. I did it. And we converted like four people to pro membership. I'm like, look, it worked. Like we got four people to sign up and pay 10 bucks a month or whatever. And then I asked him, can I get 10%? And he's like, okay. So then uh, this actually, it goes back to the funnels. So I'm doing this for a few weeks. Now we're getting five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 people to convert each week. And I'm making a little bit of money each time off this. And I'm like, this is really cool. And then I was talking to a buddy of mine. And I said, yeah, I'm getting about 10 people a week to convert. And I'm making a good amount of money off as a kind of a sales guy. And I said, I would just love to get that bigger. Like, I mean, how do I get that to, you know, 100 people a week? And he looked at me, he's like, well, Brandon, you just get 10 times any more people invited. Just invite 10 times as many people. And it was like this like obvious, but like light bulb moment. I'm like, oh, well, how do I invite 10 times more people? And I was like, well, what if I put it in the signup process? Like when you sign up for a bigger pockets free membership, it was like, hey, do you want to come to the webinar? And all of a sudden, overnight, 10 times more people started getting invited, 10 times more people converted. And all of a sudden, my income went up 10 times like in like a month period. <laughs> I was making so much money, Josh had to renegotiate my, my commission. He just couldn't fathom giving me couldn't that much it. money. It was, a great, it was a great few months though, man. That was fun. Then we decided, well, what if we did this? I mean, every single week. And every week would be a webinar. And then every week, we'd have like a discount code or some kind of reason to sign up. And then it would actually end. And then a whole new group of people who signed up the next week would get to go to the next webinar. So it was an ongoing webinar that we didn't automate. I did it every week for, I think, seven years in a row. And I think I missed one week, maybe. I was on a cruise ship and I didn't have a good internet. But it grew bigger pockets to just thousands, I mean, tens of thousands now pro members through that system. And uh, they continue to use it today. It's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. So a couple things. One of the things I talk a lot about is channel strategy. So marketing channels, sales channels. I think when you start a company or you're running a company, or you're trying to grow a business, people think like, oh, I have to do everything. I got to be on every platform. I have to be advertising yeah. everywhere. I've got to be doing billboards and you know, hiring sales reps. The reality is it's usually one or two channels that takes yep. you to millions in revenue. Like One yeah. single channel can easily bring you two, three, four, five million in revenue. And so it's yeah. not about overthinking it and trying to do everything. It's about trying to figure out which one works, then stopping everything else and just yes. doing that one thing. Because in today's world, this applies to real estate and internet marketing or business, or whatever. In today's world, you have to be really, really good to make money at anything. I mean, like to make money at this stuff, right? You can't just go and buy any rental property and assume that that rental property is going to make a ton of money. You have to be really good to make money. That Same with internet marketing. Same if you want to have an Amazon business. Same if you want to do anything, right? You have to be really good. And it is really hard to be really good at a lot of things. So once you know that like, oh, Facebook ad to webinar, that works. I'm going to become the world's best Facebook ad to webinar guy, at least in my industry. And you just go a mile deep and you start going to conferences and hiring consultants and you become really, really good at that thing and so specialized, that's where you make most money. Yeah, if you look at most like super rich people and successful people, that's what they did. They have a thing, they just harp on it and they just make the thing work. And again, same with real estate. Like once I figured out like mobile home parks worked, we just like lit up mobile home parks. And once I realized like Instagram would work for raising the money, we just poured heavily into that. So it applies to anything. Just be a mile deep. It's, just, it's amazing what happens and how few people in the world are doing that. Nobody's doing it. Everyone yeah. wants to be a mile wide, but go a mile deep. So was it the same webinar you were doing every single week just to a new audience? No, it was a different webinar every week. Here's how it kind of functioned. is I did a new one every week like where I just teach a new thing. I'm going to teach duplexes and I'm going to teach how to do the burst strategy, how to house hack. And then we would just monitor metrics, conversion rates, show up, how many people showed up, how many people registered, what's our percentage of people who saw the invite and then registered. And we would track those on a spreadsheet. And then over time, I started seeing which ones do better and which ones do worse. So I probably did 40 different webinars over the course of 6 or 7 years, but finally nailed it down to 8 that were really like the primary, like the best ones. And so these 8 that I did on repeat, but then every time I'd get through 8 of them, I'd get through a cycle I would then drop whatever one was the least performing and I'd bring in a brand new one. And I would do that one. And then I would later on, I'd drop it again. So that way we were continually refining. Now that said, it sounds like a tremendous amount of work. Real estate is not a complicated business. At the end of the day, I'm teaching the same concept. Whether I'm teaching apartment complexes or house hacking, you know what's the same about both of them? The LAPS funnel, LAPS. 
That's the same. Right. You know what else is the same? Having commitment. What else is the same? Having accountability. What else is the same? Running numbers. What is cash flow? So although they were all different, they all ended up pretty much at the exact same point, which then led them into a pro membership. The reason it works so much too, I tell people this all the time, like salespeople or people in real estate, the reason I was so good and nobody at Bigger Pockets could ever come close to my sales numbers, like the percentages I could do it, because nobody believed in it like I believed in it and still do. Like I actually use the Bigger Pockets calculators still. I still love them. I still believe in them. And I have people try to sell it who don't use it and don't believe in it. I'm like, well, of course you can't sell as good as me because you don't even use your own product. Like the reason I yeah. can sell open door capital is because I invest in every single idea I do and I pour almost all of my money into my own deals because I believe in it, right? So the, the greatest right. salespeople believe in their product in their heart, not just outwardly. And that's why yeah. I think I was so good at that. That's bang on. And one more tip for the listeners. This stuff on webinars is absolute gold. One more tip I'll give is we, we do a ton is when you're doing a webinar, you might put out, as you said, like you'll have eight, ver- have eight different webinars. Most of the content is the same. I'll take it one step further. We've sent out invites for webinars and I'm in the, in the digital marketing world. So we might have a webinar that's called like five things you need to know about TikTok. And, and we get a yeah. certain number of invites of registrations. The next week we send out things about TikTok that you never knew. Okay, it's the same exact same webinar, webinar, a yep. different title, and we'll see a surge in registration. So experimentation, iteration, like we're talking about here, you've got to do it because you don't know what's going to hit. Yeah, it's true. You just do not know. And we're doing that right now with like, you know, we're advertising a ton on Facebook and Google and Instagram and YouTube for Open Door Capital. We're raising a lot of money through the funnel of that. And we drive people to, I'm recording a webinar here in two hours from now that we'll use for that funnel as well. But yeah, we can have one webinar. We can test a hundred different titles. In fact, true story, so I learned something from Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, that I applied to my book, which has now sold, I think, almost 2 million copies at this point. And that was when Tim launched The 4-Hour Workweek, he didn't know the title. He was going to call it like drug dealing for fun and profit. But instead, he goes to an ad and he went to Google Ads and I did it on Facebook. So what I did, and I did exactly what he did. I created 8 different titles for the book on rental property investing. What became the book on rental property investing? I did every title. I mean, some of my titles were like, you know buying rentals for cash flow or making millions through rental properties, whatever. I tested eight of them and I made a separate book cover for each one. That was the image. And everything else in the ad was identical, but I did eight different ads with eight different titles. And this is like before the book was even finished, right? I pretended the book was for sale. When you click on it, it went, oh, this is not actually available yet. Put your email in here. I'll send you a free copy when it is. Thank you for taking part in my test. So I told people, thank you for taking part in my test. Anyway... The one that converted the least had a 0.5% click-through rate. The one that did the best had a 2.5% click-through rate. In other words, had I just randomly chosen the title from that half a percent, I would have sold five times, potentially five times less books because five times fewer people, for whatever reason, cared about that title. And I had no idea. And you never know unless you test it. And so now that book, that's the only book we ever did at Bigger Pockets that we did that exhaustive of a test for titles. And it's the one that sells 70% of all books sold at Bigger Pockets is that one book. Coincidence, right. maybe, but man, it worked. So I you never it. know. I, I, that's a coincidence. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. It, and and that, that hack, by the way, I don't want to call it a hack, but that tactic of being able to test things, Google and Facebook is such a great yeah. helper for this. So if you're going to launch a new product or if you have a startup idea, they talk about this concept of uh, a minimum viable product, MVP. Yes. I have this phrase I use, which is MVC, minimum viable concept. And in order to mm-hmm. test a minimum viable concept, like a book title or anything, you run Google Ads. So you run an ad, you take it to a landing page, and then you say, thanks so much, just a test. We'll get back to you when it's out. And all you're doing is testing different, hey, would you do this? Would you buy this? Which do you like better? And that's how you gather intelligence without actually yeah. building anything. Yeah, it's true. And it works. And the internet has made it so easy to do that. I mean, they did it yeah. for years. And like, you know, people would put ads in magazines and stuff that would never actually existed to test stuff. But today, the internet makes it anybody can do it right now. It's crazy. So true. Last question. One thing I got to know. How do you avoid distractions? Because I'd imagine, especially because you're a well-known guy, you're a creator, you must get DM'd a ton. How do you not have like a brand internal crypto coin? How do you not have like the course, the everything. How do you stay away from just doing everything and slapping your name on things and all that kind of stuff? That's a good question. 
it's very tempting all the time to want to do way too many things, right? To have the crypto and the token and the coin and what everyone else is doing in courses. And yeah, it's very, very tempting. One thing is like, I'm a big believer in the, the book, The One Thing. I love that book. It's like, what's the one thing that if you do, everything else becomes easier or non-necessary? I'm summarizing. But the open door capital, if I do it right, and if I do it to the level that I think we will do it at, will make me a billionaire with a B. Like, it's insane to think that, but like legit, we're going to buy $10 billion of real estate. We're going to turn that into $14 billion of real estate, which is how real estate works, goes up in value. We're going to pay off a billion of debt during that time. It's over the next 15 years, right? That's $5 billion. My investors get three-ish of that, you know, like because we split it 70-30. Leaving a couple billion for my company, I own half of my company. The other shares are owned by my employees. That's a billion dollars. If I just do that, Everything else is worthless. It's pots of gold. The empire is what matters. So I constantly ask myself, does this support open door capital growing? And if it doesn't, like to that level, so like billions of dollars, if it doesn't support that, it's not worth doing. Now, I still fall into the trap of shiny object syndrome, which is where then my team, who I have specifically told them to not let me get off track, will tell me, no. For example, we started looking into self-storage. We like self-storage. I like the idea of it. We started playing with it. We got all excited about it. We spent months talking about it. And then finally on this call, we were going to decide like, who are we going to partner with? Who are we going to hire to bring on to run that division for us? And my buddy Ryan, who was my original partner on Open Door Capital, he goes, can I just ask a more fundamental question here? Why are we doing self-storage? We said, because it's profitable. and can make a lot of money. And he's like, yeah, I know, but so do apartments. And apartments are 10 times bigger. Like You're not going to buy a $100 million self-storage. You're going to buy a $10 million self-storage. So... It's really the same as mobile home parks, which is why we are getting out of... I mean, not getting out, but why we diversified away from mobile home parks. It's too small. And we're like, yeah, but self-storage can do you know this and that. He's like, yeah, that's true. But apartments do it as well. Why are we doing it? And at the end of the day, the only answer we could come up with is because it looked fun. That was it. Because it was exciting. And so that meeting, we scrapped the entire plan. We're not doing self-storage. We're like, no, it does not support getting us to $10 billion faster. If it did, we would do it. If not, we don't. So have your North Star, know where that is. Ask yourself every day, every action you take, is this getting me closer or faster to my North Star? And if not, the answer is no. This is gold. Brandon Turner, nothing else left to say. Thank you so much for joining, man. Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm uh, at the uh, coffee shop on uh, Whitetail Ridge. Uh, <laughs> I'm making latte art every day from 8 a.m. to 8.05. And you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Beardy Brandon and Twitter. I am on Twitter. Go look. I made a tweet today. Beardy Brandon. Beard with a Y at the end of it. Brandon. I love it, man. Okay. Thank you so much for joining today. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. That'll help other folks find the podcast and it lets us know we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.